Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for... Hang on a minute. What's going on here? Well, I think the lack of theme tune should have been a clue. Could it be, in sort of a bit but not really keeping with the theme of this week's show, we've actually travelled back in time? Is that what's happened? Because it appears that rather than being Jaffa Cakes for Proust, we are on the podcast that started the podcast phenomenon, the whole podcast new wave thing. Hang on, what? You're making some very bold claims. Hang on a minute. All the cool kids now, all the cool kids are doing podcasts. Everybody's doing podcasts and what have you. There's all these podcasts on Podnos and what have you. Do you know what the first podcast on Podnos was by any chance? I think it might just have been the sitcom club. And here we are. Everybody else is going retro these days. Everybody else is looking back and having revivals and all sorts. And so we thought, yeah, let's do it. Well, there are two things in operation here. One was we had to decide, do we want the sitcom club to have officially ended and also officially ended, therefore, on a downer? Because it did end with us just looking out into the void and seeing a very cold future for sitcom. And the other thing was, let's not do that. So let's bring it back for a little bit. Now, as it happens, we've had to change our schedule. So this is probably going to be the only sitcom club in 2017. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, okay, that's fine, but just don't be surprised if it is the only sitcom club, because between us planning this and planning further sitcom clubs, our release schedule got halved for reasons. But this is not the last sitcom club, this is not Little Kappa just to prevent the downer ending. There will be more in 2018, fingers crossed. The mistake that we made at the end of the last sitcom club, and it was probably Peep Show that started it all, was that we allowed the present, the, the current, the modern, to impinge upon our discussion points or topics and that was only ever going to go one way wasn't it and i think i'm right in saying i'm not making this up but i'm thinking right in saying that somebody some executive at the edinburgh tv festival last week was asked what is the future for scripted comedy on television and his answer was bleak so we're not alone but normally (laughs) our sort of cutoff point our buffer so to speak is i suppose you would say but in the end of the 1980s really and that's where we should have stuck so, what we're doing today... I still had to explain my stance on Peep Show to you and to any other members of the sitcom club when we have little informal chats and production meetings. Are we going to have to do like a capper to that where I have to explain? Because I think we're now at the stage where we've kind of agreed the reason that I didn't like Peep Show, we'll be talking about Kinvig in a moment, was the impression that people had given me what the show was like and the way the show actually was. Let's save that discussion for another time. Actually, we should mention, by the way, that uh, Mitchell and Webb's new show, which is, I believe is called Back, just started about two days ago, so it'll be on all four, and it's written by the fabulous Simon Blackwell. So give that a view. We I'm might give it a view ourselves. It. I'm willing to do it for Sitcom Club. Do you know we started this in April 2013? We're coming on to the fifth anniversary of this. This is unbelievable. It doesn't make me feel old. So today we're talking about a sitcom, and this is pretty much in keeping with sitcom club tradition, a sitcom that practically nobody's ever heard of. We're going to talk about the Nigel Neal sitcom Kinvig, made by London Weekend Television. Yes, you heard me correctly, a Nigel Neal sitcom made by London Weekend Television in 1981, and it was part of ITV's big autumn lineup. It got paired with another new sitcom that year. Things didn't work out splendidly, and it was largely sort of forgotten about until it got a DVD release from Network in 2006. It's basically 
one of our very, very occasional forays into science fiction. I'm actually thinking, have we ever talked about science fiction on the sitcom club? Uh, we talked about the best science fiction program of all time, the little show called Come Back, Mrs. Noah, if you've forgotten oh. it. Oh, of course we have. Of course we have. Yes, yes. We never did Red Dwarf, and that's probably the most famous sci-fi. And we never will. Well, you're not a fan. It's not that. It's just that Red Dwarf doesn't need us. I don't doubt there is at least three Red Dwarf podcasts, if not millions. It's interesting there that you're talking about it as, oh, a sitcom nobody remembers. Gosh, Nigel Neal, isn't that surprising? I think there's different reputations in different sections of society. Anybody who knows a bit about old TV, I think will be passingly familiar with this. And then, of course, it's been available on DVD for 11 years, so people with a little more curiosity will have been able to familiarise themselves with it. So I think the people who've never heard of it and don't remember it, most of those people, this is like some insane Venn diagram, won't even know who Nigel Neal is and won't care and will not be listening to the sitcom club. Hang on a minute, we're trying to go more populist here. So that's why we're introducing this kind of talk. You see? So we're trying to appeal to a broader audience. You know, and next week we're going to be talking about Russell Howard's good news. No, we're not. But, well, yeah, I suppose, I suppose you're right. I mean, if you say Nigel Neal, I'm sort of, sort of thinking, oh, is he the guy who does, like, sci-fi things, none of which I can sort of really think of because I don't really watch or read a lot of sci-fi. My entire science fiction universe is pretty much Hitchhiker's Guide, Red Dwarf, occasionally saw Chalky as a kid. That's about it. And among the people who have heard of it, there are those who are faintly aware of its bad reputation and others. I had a look at a few message board threads from the time it came out on DVD and there were quite a lot of people saying, this is brilliant. Oh, fantastic. I remember this and it was just as good then. So there's no consensus to swim against. We're going to end up agreeing with one broad reputation or another. Well, we should also acknowledge as well that not only is this a revival for the sitcom club, this is also the late sitcom club as well, because we actually tried to do this about two years ago. I watched it. I watched it all, and you didn't. You know that picture that's going around where the guy's holding hands with one girl and he's looking (laughs) back at another girl? (laughs) You are the bloke in the middle, and holding your hand is Kinvig, and walking past is a girl with the label pretty much anything other than Kinvig. In for a penny. Yes. I found a still from In for a Penny. Way! We can get a show out of There's two stills. That's enough now for a telesnap reconstruction. <laughs> so, were you not familiar with Kinvig before it ended up on the sitcom club list? Is that what you're trying to tell us? The only thing that I knew about Kinvig... Well, a couple of things I knew about Kinvig. One was that... It was a science fiction sitcom, and the other thing that I knew about it was that it didn't complete its run in its original slot. That was it. I remember wanting to watch it at the time, and faintly, maybe I did watch one episode. I remember wanting to watch it one particular Friday night and not being able to because we'd gone out and were at somebody else's house, friend of my parents, and I thought it was on the TV. My memory is, is, uh, Colin Jeevan standing outside a newsagent getting beamed up. As it turns out, that shot is not in this show. So I must have seen like an advert for Star Bars. <laughs> is that what I'm missing? That's the thing. I remember Colin Jeevan's being in it. I had no memory of Tony Haygarth. I just remember it was a show. It was on. 
and it flopped. And it was one of those half-remembered things then. What was it called, that thing? It was about space. Well, what you're actually remembering there is the also short-lived BBC2 sitcom Colin Jeevens gets beamed up. That's what you're thinking of. And funnily enough, it was on at the same time as Kinvik on Friday night. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I know you're trying to make a joke there, but there's no way somebody would schedule a sitcom against another sitcom with the same star. Aha! Hold that thought. Come back to that. That's a nice little teaser. Yeah, little cliffhanger. So I have a curious interest in the phrase move to a less competitive slot. Any show which starts in one slot and gets moved to an earlier slot, Len Goodman's Partners in Rhyme, for example, basically I'm interested in. I want to know what the details are, what happened, why was it in that slot in the first place, why does it move earlier, later, whatever. And I knew that something had gone on with Kinvig about this, and we'll touch on this later on in more detail. But it's not quite as it seems, Iowa, because if you believe what some people have said in the past, or on message boards and what have you, it's like, oh, Kinvig started, oh, and it was always it was terrible, it was a terrible show, and so yeah, they just pulled it after like two episodes. That's not the case at all. Kinvig did air in its entirety. Over seven episodes, funnily enough. What's going on is, I think there's a little bit of ITV politics in play here. Also, this will get us onto the, the main topic of the discussion. I think also the subject matter itself, it's a little bit odd when you say. I mean, I was emphasising the earlier one, but this is a London weekend television sitcom, Free Walls, studio audience, all on VT. And the subject matter, well, it's a bit of the ordinary, wouldn't you say? It's interesting to watch time go by and to watch things shift in such a way that you find yourself having to explain things that at one point were taken for granted. There's going to come a time in your life when you find yourself having a conversation saying science fiction was not that mainstream. Because right now, science fiction, science fantasy, superhero stories, they are the stuff of colossal films. It's not a risk. And you just know that as people keep being born for some reason and they keep being young people in the world, you will find yourself having this conversation saying, I know what you mean, but... No, they wouldn't have done that at the time. It wasn't as secure. So it's like science fiction was not omnipresent. You could be an ordinary mainstream member of society who wouldn't get stared at and yet have absolutely zero knowledge of any of the great fantasy franchises that were around at the time. It's slightly different, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about Blankety Blank. And one of our guests, being as a carrot, managed to dig up some fantastic quotes uh, from edition of Did You See, where they're talking about Blankety Blank. And one of the guests mentions that she'd never seen it. You don't have people like that now who have very little to no engagement with pop culture. Am I making sense here, Gary, though, that if you did a Kinvig now, there would be a massive numbers, enough numbers of people who would watch it simply because it was science fiction to carry it in its time slot. And that at the time, making a science fiction show was a bigger risk, required a bigger investment. There were colossal science fiction hits, but there were maybe one or two a year. I mean, this is made because of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is a colossal hit. There, there are Star Wars, but there's no saturation. You can avoid science fiction and fantasy. You can go and see lots and lots of top 10 movies every month without actually bumping into science fiction if you don't want to. One thing that I mentioned to yourself when we were watching this was that this went out about two months before the 
British TV premiere of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And around about this time, you've got Star Wars, obviously. They're right in the middle of the trilogy, so to speak, if that makes any sense. And you've got things like Battlestar Galactica going on. You've got the Black Hole. And basically, sci-fi is a thing. Sci-fi is a populist thing at this time. So I guess it makes sense to have a sitcom on that topic. Yeah, it's fantasy as a mainstream thing. Genre shows. I don't know, there doesn't seem to be any term I can find that doesn't seem mildly pejorative. This is the beginning of them growing and growing in the popular mind to occupy the place they have now. But they're very far from it yet. Start naming some of the big shows now. And, like, maybe every third one would be a genre show? Man in the High Castle. Handmaid's Tale, The Defenders, is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a hit? I don't know, but I know it's out there. Daredevil, Legends of Tomorrow, The Flash, Supergirl. They're there, and they're also big-budget mainstream hits. So at this time, there might be one huge sci-fi film a year, and science fiction television... Are there any massive science fiction television things that don't get mocked for their poor special effects? I mean, even something like Battlestar Galactica, it would have been expensive, but it wouldn't have been talked about in the same breath as Brighthead Revisited. Star Wars Holiday Special. (laughs) (laughs) So saying science fiction sitcom, you're turning off a chair. Did you just say Luna? Yes, I did, yes. How I wish we lived in a world where they were making things like Luna as Netflix exclusives. <laughs> Galloping Galaxies, a Hulu original. <laughs> so that's the thing about Kendrick. You're already turning off a section of the audience simply by making it sci-fi. That's not going to be the only reference to rent ghost in this show, by the way. Just okay, leaving good. these little breadcrumbs there. So part of the audience has turned off. A much larger section of society then than now. Got sci-fi, I'm not sitting through that. That's for kids, isn't it? You know, But you do have a dedicated few who will say, science fiction, I have to watch it. It's a much smaller percentage of these audience at that time. And they sit down and they watch it, and in a manner of speaking, what they're presented with is Nigel Neal flicking the old John Harveys. <laughs> Idiots! <laughs> you actually like this stuff! <laughs> I think that was one of the things that caused it to underperform. And people did get upset. I've got a quote here. Uh, On the website offthetelly.co.uk, Jack Kibble-White did an interview with Nigel Neal. And one thing Neal says is, I held a talk after one of them, means an episode of Kinvig, I assume, and there was a woman who was in a terrible state. Why did you do this to our beliefs? She asked. I said... I wrote it precisely because you talk like that. Another quote from this interview. People who believe in flying saucers are the scrapings from the bottom. But then there's another section alienated because there are people who are fans of science fiction but don't believe in UFOs who were a bit taken aback. It's like, you're just smashing us all together. And Neil gave an interview with The Observer at the time the show came out and said, These sorts of things attract the T-shirt brigade. So one of the big problems is this is made with a very curmudgeonly, uncharitable mindset towards a section of the audience. 
So tell us about these little people we're supposed to point at and laugh at. You know Tony Hagarth? I think we've probably mentioned him in passing on the show for a completely different sitcom role together. Now, he is playing Des Kinvig, and he owns, not very much to his liking, a backstreet repair shop, electrical repair shop. And he is married to Netta, who's played by Patsy Rowlands, and his best friend is Jim, who's played by Colin Jeevans. And Des and Jim constantly swap these tales about UFOs and all this kind of thing. And obviously they're both enthusiasts about it. And then one week, Miss Griffin appears. Miss Griffin is Prunella G. And she comes into this grotty little shop. And it's a really nice looking set as well. It's very much grot. This actually looks a bit like grot from Fallen Rise of Reginald Pern. A million miles away from the world of Steptoe. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. You basically got all of this tat. And Des Kinvig is not particularly either good at or keen on his job. He's inherited this business on his wife's side. It's, it's been left to them by his wife's father. And this is a situation he doesn't really want to be in. But nonetheless, this is the situation he finds himself in. And in comes a customer, Miss Griffin. She wants some keys cut. And he's taken aback by just how direct and rude she is. And then later on that night, he starts to have visions, I suppose you would say. And these visions are of the aforementioned Miss Griffin, but she's a completely different person in a different set of circumstances on what looks like spacecraft with aliens, one of whom is Simon Williams. And she tells Kinvig that he's actually got an important task to carry out and that basically, you know, her sort of form in the shop was just a way of getting his attention and so on and so on. And of course, he then relates all this to Jim and Jim is simultaneously fascinated and also disappointed that it wasn't him because he's been wanting to see UFOs all his life. And we basically take it from there. Uh, and each week, this story continues. I wouldn't say necessarily continues apace, but we'll come to that. We're going through the individual episodes. But that's the basic gist of it. Have I left anything crucial out there from that first episode? Um, you did make one mistake. You said that Simon Williams was in this. I didn't see him. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Well, that's because he is playing Miss Griffin's assistant, Budo, but he's very heavily made up. I mean, if you didn't actually see his name on the credits, you'd have no idea that it was Simon Williams. And has a voice like this. I'm thinking maybe part of him must have really, really loved this. It's not a Simon Williams part. Either he's trying to hide the fact that he's in it for shame, or it's, yes, I'm actually get to be somebody completely other. I don't have to be a nice posh chap or a nasty posh chap. I'm not playing a good old-fashioned all-rounder or an absolute cad. I'm playing an alien. And he goes for it. You can actually kind of tell it's him if you look in the eyes. There's our three other beings on board the ship, Loon, Bat and Saga. And we have the nefarious council official, Mr. Horsley, played by Patrick Newell. So that's our setup, so to speak. Would it be fair to say that over the course of seven episodes, this doesn't exactly advance a great deal? In some ways it would be better if it had been made now. Because also in those days, story arcs were discouraged. If you read too many articles by those kind of people, yeah, the type. The type that actually are asked to write about television now for the most part. I'm sure there are some lovely ones out there. I think they did not write for an uh, astonishingly still printed newspaper in the Berliner format. 
They might try and make out that in the old days we didn't have story arcs because people couldn't cope with it. Audiences now are so much more sophisticated. It was partially because it was appointment television. You might miss one. In the pre-VCR days and even slightly to the post-VCR days because a video machine was still an expensive piece of kit for a while. There was this idea that you should be able to just be able to drop in to a certain kind of show. Serials existed, but if you weren't making a serial, you were discouraged from making a serial. There's a memo from somebody at ABC during the first series of The Avengers where he mentions the fact that references are being made to previous episodes, and he said, this is not a serial. Cut that out. So that mindset existed, and this really needs to be a serial, I think. Because I was having a hard time engaging with it for a number of different reasons. One of which is I think the writer and everything else in the production are at odds. Nigel Neal does not have any sympathy with his characters. Nigel Neal is pessimistic and misanthropic. And I think a lot of the time he has a better handle on what he doesn't like than what he does. And I don't think this prevents him being one of the greats of British television writing. But occasionally that outlook isn't useful and it can cause you to trip up. And for something like this, if you're going to tell a story about a little man, Walter Mitty, that kind of character, and I'm in trouble now because I've never actually read The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, so I might be entirely wrong about where Thurber is taking that story. But generally, if you're going to tell a story about somebody who's near the bottom of society, you have to be a little bit nice. You have to have a little sympathy for the fact that he has to have these fantasies. And Neil doesn't. People who believe in flying saucers are the scrapings from the bottom. And I think everything else in the production and the staging cares about him a bit. He's played by Tony Haygarth. And that already, I think, makes me on his side a bit. Yeah. Because if he was a bad guy, he wouldn't be being played by Tony Haygarth. Not in that fashion. Tony Haygarth could be a badden if he wanted to. Full range actor. But he's playing it as just a guy who's not entirely satisfied with life. He's a dreamer. But the script has him as a loafer. He's not a lovable loser. He lets people down. He hasn't cut these keys for Miss Griffin because as soon as he approaches the task, he just stops and just leans and starts thinking. He hasn't fixed a radio for an old lady. He doesn't do his job because he's too busy gassing with his mate Jim about flying saucers or just dreaming. Doesn't Netta say at one point, he doesn't like Netta's brother because he thinks he's obsessed with money. And he says, money's not what's important. Ideas, ideas are what matter. But he's saying that at the same time as, in a way, he's not really been able to fully provide for Netta and the dog, Cuddles, and having to basically sort of take cast-offs and bits and pieces from Netta's brother to get by. So here's the thing. I also think we're meant to dislike Netta. And you could make her unlikable. Her thing is, is that she's infantile. She brings him his breakfast in the morning and says something like, two little piggy-wiggies with curly-wurly tails. And he can tell it mildly irks him. To make somebody like that really unlikable, you'd either have to have her be the kind of person who's whimsical because they're ignoring how horrible the world is. 
or that infantile outlook also extends to a certain childish selfishness. She turns nasty. In this, that doesn't really happen. There's one interesting bit where I think she brings him his tea and he says tar, and she goes, tarnetta. But that's about as far as it goes for any indication that she's oppressing him. But I'm thinking, I think Nigel Neal doesn't like her. You can't dislike Patsy Rollins. That's not possible. So there's a normal sitcom here about Daft Dreamer and there's what's happening underneath. I mentioned to yourself when we are watching this, and I've mentioned it previously, that I don't like Shelley as a character. I never really understood why we were supposed to be on Shelley's side. I was some very selfish individual. You could sort of say that about Kinvig as well, but I've got a bit more sympathy with him because he didn't choose this set of circumstances. You know, he, he mentions more than once the fact that they've inherited this shop. And Nett is trying to sort of, you know, explain that it was a gift, it was an inheritance, but nonetheless, it's not where he wants to be. And that partially explains why he's so keen to go off and find pleasure in escapism. There's that scene in episode one where Jim and Des are talking about UFOs and Des Kitvig just seems to be doing it to shoot the breeze. He's not as zealous as Jim. Jim really cares about this stuff and he's got all these conspiracy theories. The UFO that landed on Buckingham Palace and the reason nobody knows about it is the information was suppressed. Kinvig just seems to be doing this for something to talk about. I mean, he does mention that he doesn't believe there is anybody on Venus. So it's odd that he's the one who has the fantasy, or is it? Actually, that's another thing. In some ways, the show wants to be saying, is it a fantasy or is it reality? And I think Neil's wanting to be saying, this is fantasy. This is a lonely, desperate little man who's fantasizing about some stranger who doesn't even like him. Is it episode three with the knives and forks? So that brings Yuri Geller. They found a bunch of bent knives and forks and start to theorise that this is because of aliens with their psychogenic powers. We find out the source of the bent knives and forks. They've been thrown out of the council building and to prevent them being resold, they've been bent. This is Bingleton Borough Council, which has a big sign on top of its council building that says BBC. Got this vision now of Nigel Neal. He's actually doing the... uh, Father Ted speech, isn't he? And now we come to liars. <laughs> we have a scene at the council building and we find out why these knives have been bent and who did it. it was the nephew of the secretary of the councillor that we occasionally bump into, played by Patrick Newell. So we know it's actually nothing to do with aliens. It definitely isn't. It's all fake. It's all in Des's mind which I think takes away a reason for following this story. It sounds a bizarre thing to say. Well, Nigel Neal making it up, that's fine, but if one of the characters inside it's making stuff up, I don't want to know about that. Why is that? Why do I have to believe some of it's real when, of course, none of it's real? It's all people pretending, but if people inside the pretend are also pretending, that doesn't really interest me. I have to have a little bone thrown to me to think that this could be real even if I don't have to be told it's real. I ha- well, in fact, that would be a problem too. If this is all really happening, then just tell that story. If it isn't happening, I'm not interested. As far as this business is concerned, for, is it all fancy and so on? 
The one thing that I did wonder about, and I mentioned this to yourself again when we were watching this, if it is all in Kinvig's head, why does Miss Griffin keep on coming back into the shop? Yes. Particularly given his line of business. So in other words, she gets her keys cut eventually when she has to harangue him and harangue him, and then the key breaks in a later episode. He has to go around and retrieve it from the, the lock. She's asking to get her suitcase mended. Well, if he took that long over the key, would you really go back to the same shop to get your suitcase mended? Then she goes back and gets her hair dryer fixed. Now, if you've already had two clear examples that he's useless as a handyman workman, then would you actually trust him with, with anything that had a plug on the end of it? That didn't sit well with me. So that, that was where I was sort of thinking, well, this is lending credence to the idea that she is coming to the shop for a reason. This thing going to reveal itself late at night. And how much are we going to get into spoilers in this, by the way? I mean, I don't I, I think don't... we can talk about it while completely avoiding spoilers because well, we've already spoiled the fact that, yeah, they pretty much tell you it's not happening. But it seems like a mistake. <laughs> it doesn't seem like this is the big reveal. This is not tearing aside the curtain and looking at the man behind it. This is episode three in a line of uh, dialogue that's just casually dropped. Oh, thanks for getting your nephew to bend all those forks. Okay, most of the time that Kinvig encounters Miss Griffin on the spaceship, it's usually obviously late at night, and the implication is that he's dreaming. Except for when they're coming back from Netta's brother with a carpet, and the car breaks down. And Kinvig leaves the car for a short while and goes off into the woods and there's a spaceship. He gets on the spaceship and is given his task, so to speak, does his task, returns to the car, the car starts. Are we supposed to believe that that didn't happen? Or that he went into the woods and then nodded off whilst he was in the woods and then woke up and then came back to the car or what? Did I miss something crucial there? But There's a few little odd bits of hand-wavy stuff to try and carry across some of this and there's a line it's in episode one i think it's restated later miss griffin says that she's going to keep coming back to torture des she's just going to keep asking him to do little jobs because he fascinates her horribly and later on it's implied that she is really more interested what excuses he's going to come up with but if that's the case then she has no right to be angry there's an odd scene is it the last episode where she Suggest to Des that he get out of the town. Not in a go, but she's talking about how she wants to get out of here and she said that he should he should take Netta and go. Like she wants him to do something. So there's a possibility there that maybe she thinks he's wasting a fine imagination, but for the most part that's not how it's played. It's played that she thinks he's a loser and she hates him and yet she keeps coming back to ask him to do jobs that she knows he won't complete, and then is angry at him for not completing them. If Neil is against Des and Jim and Netta, is he on side with Miss Griffin? The only time we actually see any kind of... It's not really even interaction between Netta and Miss Griffin is in the final episode, isn't it? Which actually felt a little bit like a sort of filler episode. It didn't really take the story anywhere. But there was a point at which Netta actually sort of thought, is there something going on between the two of them? Another thing, of course, is if we're going to tell this as some bizarre one-sided love story, shouldn't we meet Miss Griffin for the first time at the same time that Des meets her for the first time? 
but we don't. She comes in and goes, oh, Miss Griffin, she's already brought the keys in before the show starts. So we don't get to see his first reaction to her. That seems inelegant as well. This isn't as bad as its reputation. It's not a disastrous flop from beginning to end. I was okay spending time with it. It's just that at the end of every episode, I felt a bit let down. It was like eating a bunch of empty calories. <laughs> well, we've mentioned about sitcoms which have a nice sort of overall warm glow to them. So they're not necessarily the funniest sitcoms that are going to have you rolling around on the floor, but there's something about the overall setup that you quite like, and that's why you might keep on coming back to it. I actually really liked Ken Vig's sort of home life and business. I liked the, 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 the dusty sort of shop. I liked the fact that Jim kept on coming in with silly UFO magazines and coming out with his latest theory and so on. It all actually looked quite cosy. It looked quite nice. And it was nice seeing like bits and pieces of a local area and the location that's right on the corner, uh, the shop itself, and obviously the implication is that he lives right above the shop and so on. And yeah, I just, I actually quite liked the overall sort of appearance of it. So I warmed to it from that sense and there wasn't really anybody to dislike as such, I mean, I suppose you're supposed to dislike Mr. Horsley and the local council and what have you, because he's obviously up to no good, although not necessarily the way that Convig and Jim think he is. But yeah, I didn't find this disagreeable at all. Do you remember we tried to watch once, I think it was a Wendy Craig sitcom called Laura and Disorder? Do you remember that? Some BBC Two sitcoms from the late 1980s. And we had it on, and we think we lasted about 10 minutes. I think we lasted about half an episode of Two's Company with Elaine Stritch and Donald Sinden. And for whatever reason, it's just like, this is doing nothing for me. I'm just not, not going to persevere with this because I'm not getting any enjoyment out of this. Never felt that with Convig at all. And I, I think also, possibly that's something to do with, you can explain this better than I can, the LWT look. What is the reason for the LWT look? Why does it look so nice? They must have had a lot of lights. They must have had a lot of fill lights. I think it's lit from above and below, and their shows tend to be floodlit. You can tell by looking. And it's interesting that, as we previously talked about one time, Take a Letter, Mr. Jones, particularly, and to a lesser extent, that Barrel Master, they look like LWT shows, even though they're made by Southern. So it's obviously, if you know how it's done, you can do it yourself. Well, don't forget, of course, they've got uh, an ex-LWT man at the helm. They've got Brian Izzard as their producer. So there might be certain techniques that are being reused there as well. They've also probably got a little bit more cash to splash around. Or they have more resources because their studios are not being used as much. Maybe it's not just a matter of money. Maybe it's also a matter of time. You're not costing LWT any more money if you hang around this studio just a little bit longer to make a decision about where to put this piece of scenery. These people are being paid whether they're working or not. That's how it worked, wasn't it? That's why Stanley Baxter went there. Because there was studio space and there were people who were being paid whether LWT was using them or not. So it was kind of like, well, we, we put them to work, we don't lose money, and we actually gain in production values. No, yeah, LWT shows of 1970s and I suppose even, even into the 90s have got a fabulous look and feel, and they are just exquisite in terms of production values. And the spaceships in this and the special effects in this, okay, they're not going to be mistaken for Spielberg, but at the very worst, they are slightly above adequate. 
I wouldn't mind being on a spaceship if it was an LWT spaceship, put it that way. LWT Mercury looks like an audience with set (laughs) turned up a little bit. For all that would be giving Nigel Neal a kicking, he understands about structure, he's good with dialogue. It's just that his is the voice that's out of harmony with everything else in this production because he's singing along out of key in a sing-song voice to mock everything. And I think everybody else is kind of on side with Des a little bit. What did you think of Jim? Well, he's a fruit loop. It's not just what he talks about, it's the way he talks about it. He would be unbearable, I think, no matter what he was into. I was sort of interested to know a bit more about Jim's background and his home life. Because there was actually a point at which you may already have been thinking this anyway, but the impolite version of Miss Griffin, as in in the shop, she suddenly comes out with what you might already have thought. She says, you're always in here. You're always in here keeping him from his work. And there's a bit of truth to that. You know, I mean, even if Kinvig suddenly developed a fantastic work ethic, then he's either going to be held up by Jim coming in, clutching, you know, 14 times and saying, have you seen this? Or at some point, there would have to be a really uncomfortable conversation between Des and Jim, where Des says, look, Jim, I don't have, you know, um, time for this, you know, just now I've got keys to cut, I've got suitcases to mend and so on, so on. And you'd feel terrible for Jim then. But Jim seems to me as if he's either accepting that that this is his world, this is where he wants to be, or he's actually completely unaware of it. It's almost as if... I've, I've never actually seen Close Encounters as a film. I've not really seen very many science fiction films. But occasionally, you know, I've seen, obviously, bits and pieces you know, in passing when it's on the TV. And there's a particular scene with Richard Dreyfus where, by this point, he's in the grip of whatever this phenomenon is, and he's just sitting there with his mashed potato, and he's building the, the image of the entity that he's seen. That's, in a way, Jim sort of strikes me as that. It's almost as if he's completely unaware of the outside world now, and he's just basically in the grip of this, and I think that he probably, he'd probably struggle if anybody suggested to him all this is nonsense. Having said that, there is one point at which Jim rushes in and hands Kinvig some scrap of paper and says, you know, what do you make of this? This, this could be it. This could be the key and so on. Anyway, I'll leave this with you because I've got to go and sign on. And I say, yeah, I've got to go and sign on now because I won't get the supplementary benefits that we're doing. So he's still, he's still just in touch with everyday life <laughs> and no more. He hasn't completely gone off the rails. It's interesting. I like that fact that he, he could in one moment be somebody who only a few years later would love the internet because he'd be on the internet all day. He'd be on, what, what, was, what was the early version on the internet? What was it called? The, the chat rooms and what have you. Usenet? The news groups? Yes, uh, Prodigy and things like that. Yeah, he'd be on there 24 hours a day, definitely. And yet, he also still realised that he actually had to do certain things at certain times of the day just to be able to otherwise maintain this everyday existence. So I was interested. I mean, we never actually got to see Jim's home life. but That's the weird thing. He's married. If this was being made by a younger writer, maybe somebody slightly more knowing, this would have been about two guys in their early 20s with no friends. The anorak stereotype. It's interesting that when Neil goes to write this, and maybe this is actually more acute observation on Neil's part, because this was inspired by him going to, I think it was a science fiction convention, 
that his characters are two middle-aged married men. So I'm, I'm going to drop some plot-struck characterization spoilers because I think Miss Griffin is a weak link in that she's inconsistent. So there's the one where it turns out she's working for Bingleton Borough Council and she's working for the evil councillor and he's making very unsubtle passes at her and she's, oh, we can't go back to my place because my landlord's a peeper, which is actually established. She mentions it in episode one that her landlord's a peeper. It was in the last episode as well. Yes. But it seems to be an excuse to fend him off. And then later on, Des and Jim catch her and the councillor in the car smooching. So, was she interested? Wasn't she interested? What's happening? You see, in one way, that could be the ambivalence coming into play, that she's spying on the aliens, because the general gist of the Kinvig's mind part is that Councillor What's-His-Name is one of the alien horde coming to take over. But it this doesn't pay off. They're trying to leave space for Series 2 of Kinvig, and it's not going to happen. And one thing I said to her, I said, these things need to be more closely tied. As it turns out, there are a couple of times when Des and Jim's actions actually punish the counsellor for being corrupt. But they're just isolated instances. It would have been more interesting had this been a serial that you've got this parallel thing. Des thinks he's fighting off an alien invasion. And by doing that, and this is where maybe the none of it is real thing could have been okay. In doing this fake fight against alien invaders, he actually ends up foiling a plot of political corruption. But it would have to be that Des moved closer and closer to the heart of this plot, rather than the contract for cutlery in the council building and letting somebody use a place scheduled for demolition to make mannequins. Also, Gary, uh, do you still want to play sitcom universe? Oh, very much so. I've actually got I've got a potential sitcom universe slash recasting idea coming up. But yes, do tell. Uh, the abandoned building where they're making the mannequins that... Des and Jim believe are clones in the manner of Invasion of invasion of the Body Snatchers, that's it. Uh, it's mentioned that it used to be a pickle factory. Hey! <laughs> Is Kinvig in the nearest and dearest universe? Well, hang on a second. We already know that there's, there's been some funny business going on in that pickle factory in the past. Didn't they find like a skeleton behind the fireplace there once? Joe Gladwin found it and came in and said, yes. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, Miss Nelly, that business, it, it wasn't dry rot or anything. It was just a, a load of skeletons <laughs> that were hiding behind a wall from God knows what atrocity. So, no, everything's fine. Let's have a sing song. See, at first, when I was watching this, I thought maybe this is going to lead somewhere. And the problem is, is that Neil's still working with something of a 1950s television mindset that allows you long lead ins. You can wait two or three episodes before you really start paying off, but it never came. You know who's to blame for that, don't you? Spider-Man. How so? Because Kinvig is a seven-part series, and it worked nicely in its slot alongside another sitcom called Roots that we'll talk about in a moment. And before both of those shows, in the new autumn lineup on ITV, it's The Amazing Spider-Man, which opens with a 90-minute spectacular before then settling down to regular one-hour slot. I don't think that's a tack they've ever taken in the comics. J. Jonah Jameson does hate Spider-Man and accuses him of all sorts of terrible things. It would be interesting if they eventually revealed that his animus against Spider-Man is because he blames him for the cancellation of Kinvig. <laughs> that being said, I haven't seen Spider-Man Homecoming. Maybe 
that's right at the heart of the plot there. But I have a terrible confession to make. I'm afraid that our usual rigorous research has, I'm afraid it's had a bit of a brick wall on this occasion because I was intrigued by this talk that Kinvig was such a disaster that it just got pulled off the air and so on and so on and shunted to the four corners of the earth. Now, we know that's not true, but otherwise actually finding out precisely what did happen has proved pretty much impossible. The backdrop to this is ITV's making a big play about its new autumn lineup, and Kinvig is one of the featured programmes that's in it. Alongside it, in a double bill on Friday evenings, is a show called Roots, and it's not the one that you're thinking of, and that's possibly the first problem with said show. Roots was a Marx and Grand sitcom about a dentist. It was made by ATV, and that was scheduled for 8 o'clock with Kinvig to follow. Roots was not a success, and... Roots was dropped by London Weekend after three episodes. Now, here's a fun fact for you, and it also sort of ties in with the sitcom universe as well. There was a short-lived discussion programme in the London area called London Talking that was hosted by Melvin Bragg. Before it actually went to air, they recorded a number of pilot programmes, and one of the pilots, which was hosted by an MP, Liberal MP called John Pardo, they actually had somebody raise their hand and say, What's with all these game shows and quiz shows on a Saturday night? There's far too many of them. And Brian Tesla of LWT said, yeah, but the problem is that the other ITV companies, they didn't really come forward with a lot of material. And so we had this you know, sort of logjam. Would you believe it? But Arthur Perkins from Rent-A-Ghost sticks up his hand and says, actually, you did have some other programs to show. And I was in one of them. It was called Roots. And it was a sitcom made by ATV. And yet you went and dropped it after three episodes. And Brian Tesla says, no, no, we had to do something. The ratings were disastrous. Roots was dropped. They occasionally swapped the slots round. Convict occasionally went out to 8pm. But that's where the trail goes cold. And trying to work out what shows went out in individual ITV areas over a six or seven week span is not the easiest task in the whole world. So all I can say for absolute certainty is that Roots was dropped by London Weekend, after three episodes, a number of other regions shunted routes to various other parts of the schedule, and that sort of left Kinvig sort of hanging. It was, depending on who you believe, sometimes it was preceded or followed by repeats of Play Your Cards Right or the Irene Handel and Julian McKenzie sitcom Maggie and Her. Yorkshire actually shunted Kinvig to 515 for its last two episodes, and ATV, possibly in retaliation to LWT for the root spoiler, they shunted Kinvig to half past ten from half past eight for its final episode, swapping it with an episode of WKRP in Cincinnati, which had been on late at night. Now, I did actually say to yourself at one point, Tilt, that I was getting sort of CITV vibes about Kinvig, and I was sort of suggesting if you just sort of toned down a little bit of the levaciousness coming from Patrick Newell and take out the studio audience I could see this going out at 4.45 in the afternoon and lo and behold so did Yorkshire because <laughs> they put it on straight after watch it This has been a tangle because part of it could be that Kinvig didn't fail on its own qualities, it was killed off by the poor leading from Roots and the response across the board has been different because you have what, 14 different decision makers or Probably slightly broken down because people take their networking from different bigger regions. But everybody's having different responses. Now, are they having different responses to different effects? 
is it dying in Yorkshire, but is generally holding its own in Granada or Southern or Anglia? Are Yorkshire doing the right thing? Or is it dying everywhere and different people are taking different decisions? Move it earlier, move it later, switch them because maybe we've got strong numbers for Kinvig, maybe those will translate into strong numbers for Roots. We'd have to find hundreds of memos, I think, to really satisfactorily answer this question. And this was the question we set out to answer. It's really the only reason that we're doing Kinvig is because Gary found one little thing that fascinated him. So let's spare a thought for the fact that he never got an answer properly. Yes, indeed. But what we do know for certain is that they did actually move forward the debut of a new series of Play Your Cards Right and give it a special trailer to actually say, yes, ladies and gentlemen, what's written in the TV Times for 8 o'clock is incorrect. Don't worry about it. It isn't going to be Roots. They didn't say that by name. It's going to be a new series of Play Your Cards Right. Fantastic. They actually called it a special program change, which I've never heard that phrase used before or since. No, I mean, there are instances of, of shows not doing particularly well in particular regions. So, I mean, Yorkshire, like I said, they moved Kinvig earlier, they replaced it with a piece of George and Mildred. TSW, famously, dropped the 13-fold, the Eric Sykes golf comedy, halfway through its run. They were the only region to do so. Every other region ran it in the same time slot for the entire series. Yeah, it, it's an oddity, but I mean, yeah, I guess it happens in, in some instances where a show might just not do particularly well in a particular locality. You also alluded to this earlier on, of course. The competition on BBC One was the standard Friday night fair of It's a Knockout, followed at quarter past eight. So right in the area where you've got the commercial break in Roots, you have a new series of Rosie. And of course, that does feature one Tony Haygarth in the PlayStation as a regular cast member. And so he's actually going out opposite himself. I can't think of too many instances of that. I mean, nowadays I'm sure that's a regular occurrence with the number of channels you've got these days. But a prominent actor in two different shows at the same time, in peak time as well? Not bad, is it? It's going to be a weird feeling for him, hasn't it? It's like, well, they don't want to watch me in that, but they do want to watch me in this. So they do like me. Not my fault that Kinvig's died. I want to come back to the plausible deniability, is it, isn't it? thing. There's a thing that's set up in episode one that is then featured in a couple of episodes and is central to the last episode. It's mentioned that Des's late father-in-law kept a bunch of tonics that he thought kept him healthy. And Miss Griffin picks one up, sniffs it, and says, what did he die of? Cirrhosis of the liver. And the laugh after that covers back, but she says something about the morphine content. Later on, it's like, are these fantasies happening? Because... <laughs> It's hallucinating because he's taking morphine. <laughs> is this a drug-related thing? <laughs> Isn't that a bit depressing? Is Des going to die? Well, actually, if you want me to really super spoil it for everybody, I thought he was going to die in the last episode because <laughs> the way it was framed. There's this bit where it's kind of... It's not really a payoff. It's there to give some sense of closure, but also not. He has this vision that the alien version of Miss Griffin... So he's trying to slip this stuff to an encyclopedia salesman that he thinks is an alien. It keeps getting slipped back to him, so he keeps passing out, having a vision that he's on the ship, belonging to Miss Griffin and the beings from Mercury. And then, because he effectively fails in his mission, this is really the first time he's failed, we have this odd little sequence where he meets Miss Griffin in this kind of void, and she says, you did your best. You always do your best. 
and they walk off into the stars. And I thought, he's dead! It looks like he's died. It looks like this is his dying vision. He goes off to be in Mercury Heaven with Miss Griffin. Can we mention the, the outfits? Or oh, well, the, the, the beings? No, Miss Griffin. I think it's a commentary on male gaze in science fiction. What would you say? They're quite alluring and revealing outfits. Well, one of them is just basically a bikini and a transparent cape. She has some odd hairstyles on the ship as well. Okay, I have an idea for slight recasting and also slight impact on the rest of the sitcom universe. You mentioned earlier on that in Neil's mind, we're not really supposed to be in sympathy really with any of the characters. To facilitate this, initial recasting, instead of Patsy Rollins as Netta, Amy McDonald. <laughs> now, Amy McDonald is still going to do this sort of the, the twee and infantile sort of behaviour, but also she could take slightly less of an interest in Kinvig's everyday life, and instead she's sort of more interested in just acquiring things. She, she wants the nicer things in life. And so you're feeling a little bit sorry for Kinvig because he's sort of put upon and he's going to just you know, do this job he's not really enjoying, but he wants to provide for Netta as well. Instead of Miss Griffin working at the council office with the loathsome Mr. Horsley, it's actually Netta who works there. So Mr. Horsley has eyes for Netta and... That then gets Kinvig thinking, what's going on? But also, he's not just thinking, what's going on? Is there something happening to the two of them? But also, he's got Jim in his ear saying that there might be a sort of interdimensional aspect to all this as well. Part of the reason that I suggest this is because Patrick Newell plays ah, a similar character in... You were reminded as well, good. Yes, in Man About the House movie, he plays an MP. So he's not a million miles away. And he has what you might call a special friend on the quiet and she's played by Amy McDonald so you already have footage of, of the two of men away so you can then <laughs> reuse that in Reject Kinvig the only problem with that is when Amy McDonald's casting something she's meant to be sexy and Netta isn't we're meant to think that Patsy Rowland is I don't know what are the words homely mousy which personally I don't think she is. I was watching this thinking she is as attractive but in a different way <laughs> as Prunella G. Thinking, yeah, okay, two little piggy wiggies with curly whirly tails. That would be annoying. Tarnetta, that would be annoying. But to be honest, allowing for that, being married to Netta Kinvik didn't look like exactly the worst life a person could live. Might not be everything one hoped for oneself, but it seemed very bearable. Yes. There are aspects of their situation which are actually quite enviable. I mean, they actually, by inheritance, they own not only their own home, but also their own business. That's quite enviable. Um, you know, so a lot of people wouldn't be in a situation where they have either of those things. Yeah, all this really needs to do is do the jobs when he's asked to. Yeah, he's fine. He could be living a good life. I don't think this would necessarily have worked. Even just a few years later, I'm reminded of... So Haunt Me, Miriam Carlin and Tessa Pick Jones, and Mark Lewison's book, Radio Times Guides Comedy, mentions the fact that the family and that are complaining about their 
supposedly reduced circumstances because they've moved from a nicer house to a slightly less nice house, so to speak, which is also haunted. And as he pointed out, you know, this is a time when, you know, Black Wednesday's just been, people are, you know, facing repossessions and so on. And this doesn't particularly look good in the context of everyday life. And I suppose 1981, you know, were a few years before that, but even so, I don't know, that that that's potentially a reason to perhaps dislike Des Convic a little bit, because he, he doesn't quite realise just how lucky he is. But he's not a consistent character. He's written one way, played another way. Miss Griffin is all over the place, both as Miss Griffin and her alien self. It's just not gelling. But anyway, so that's Kinvig, really. We've been harsh on Nigel Neal because this time he didn't bring the goods. But we're not tearing him down. Sometimes it's good to take a jaded view of things. Sometimes it is good to look at society and say, what is the worst that is happening? To what terrible places can this lead? But sometimes, no. Sometimes you can't do that. There's an unproduced Nigel Neal script called The Big Giggle, and it's all about a suicide cult growing amongst the nation's teens. But the thing he's looking at is simply youth culture. People doing things because they're cool. It's essentially, from what I can tell, I've not seen the entire script, it's essentially basically, oh, so if he jumped off a bridge, you'd do it too. Writ large. So... One of these days, we'll get some Nigel Neal in and we'll look at what he does do well, because he does do well, and I think he deserves his reputation as somebody who is vital to the history and development of British television, but he shouldn't have written a sitcom. Can I just mention before we go two things? One, I completely forgot to mention the ITV Playhouse Friends in Space from 1980, written by Ray Hassett and John Ratzenberger from Cheers. I will mention that because it does cross over. I don't think it's available on DVD, but it's worth comparing Kinvig with, but I haven't seen it in a very, very long time. And the other thing, while we're here on Sitcom Club, we have a little bit sitcom news that was brought to our attention via Twitter. There's going to be a British Empire reunion event at Ringwood Leisure Centre where the series was shot on October the 2nd. And there's more information about that on chrisbarryfans.wordpress.com. Com, and I don't doubt we'll tweet something out as well. So next week, over on Mixcloud, there'll be a Jaffa Cake jukebox with me, Gary, and Tyler will also be joining us. We'll be talking about the sound of mid-60s pop films because we talked about some of those films. We'll be playing some of the songs from those films and more. And the week after that, 22nd of September, we'll be talking about Match Game, the US game show. We'll be talking about Blankety Blanks, the Australian game show. And we'll be talking about Blankety Blank, the good old British game show. And we will have guests to help us examine this world of game showery that dominates the Anglosphere. Well, that all sounds like top quality entertainment to me. In the meantime, you can find us at... Now, let me get this right now because walk out which room I'm in again. So hang on a second. We are actually on Twitter as the Sitcom Club. If you prefer, you can follow us at Jaffa's for Proust. You can search Sitcom Club on Facebook and get Jaffa Cakes for Proust. That's just how it works. Alternatively, you can email us for either show at feedback at sitcomclub.com and you can find all number of podcasts, of which I think Jaffa Cakes for Proust was the very first one, on podnose.com. Goodbye from the Sitcom Club. See you next year and we'll see you throughout the rest of the year at Jaffa Cakes for Proust and Jaffa Cake Jukebox. Goodbye. Tweeos.